together. All right, hey, um, so we spent the last 10 months going through the book of Revelation. We spent nine, nine of those months, we were in, actually literally in it. Um, we had one little break for about three or four weeks. But, um, but, but kind of coming in, why, why do we do this? Why do we study difficult parts of the Bible? Why is it that we would stop and spend all that time to go through something that is hard to understand um, and, and, and honestly uh, is probably the hardest series of messages I've ever had to do? It's one of the most difficult books in the Bible, and, and some people absolutely loved it. I mean, just loved it, and uh, either that or they're just being really nice. Um, but there are other people who wondered, are we ever going to finish it? I mean, we have been here forever. And, and so, you know, why, why do, do we spend so much time going through things or, or doing things like that? I mean, could, I mean, another way of putting it is, can't you just hit the high spots? I mean, can't you just kind of tell us the, the big picture and, and that's good enough? I mean, I, do we have to get into the weeds and, and down to the bottom or, or, or why not just recommend a good book or video series um, for, for people who are really interested in this stuff and the rest of us, we can do something that, you know, seems like it, it would be more um, applicable to what's going on. Well, um, I want to give you some reasons for that first because it's not a book that deals primarily with future. Revelation is not about the future. It's, um, <clears throat> it speaks to our current culture today. It speaks to what's going on in our lives today, just like it spoke to John, but it also gives us a hope for the future. It, it tells us this is where it all lands. This is how things are going to um, be at, at the end of everything. In 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Peter wrote, he, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Um, as Peter said, you know what, this, this has been a plan that's been going on forever, and, and you're right in the middle of it, and you need to know it and understand it. The second reason is, or maybe really probably the primary reason, really, is that the book of Revelation is part of God's word. God's word is given to us, and, and it's, it's profitable for us. It is something that is given to us, and we're commanded to take it in, to know it, to soak it in, to understand it. Or as in Colossians 3.16, um, it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, you know, another reason is, is, is we need to have the Word of God alive in us, living in us, uh, soaking it in, taking it in, knowing it, applying it to our lives. And then finally, the book of Revelation shows us how to live our lives today in light of the future. It, it tells us this is, this is what God's plan and purpose is. This is how you live to be a part of that. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul wrote this, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. The only way you can do that is to know the Word of God. So <clears throat> Revelation, if we come in, the book, it centers on this. This is the thing that it centers on above everything, is the sovereignty of God. In other words, God is over everything. There is nothing 
outside of his control or realm. And, and that's a truth that we really overlook today. We readily overlook the fact that God is sovereign. We, we think that we're sovereign. We think that the circumstances around us are sovereign. We, we think in a lot of different ways. But this gives us a glimpse of the God of all creation firmly seated on the throne over everything. Nothing can change him. Nothing can overpower him. Nothing can fool him, deter him, prevent his word from going out. Nothing can destroy his church. Nothing can destroy his people. Nothing is beyond his reach. He brings kings to power and he removes them. You see that throughout the word of God. Throughout the word of God, you see God raising people up to power and you see God taking people out of power. And you see that in response to different things. You see an evil king, and God will not let him stay. He will, he, will, he will take that out and stop it, and he'll replace him, and he'll replace him, and he'll replace him. You'll see that when the people of God turn away from him, he will let them have the rulers they seek and they desire, and, and they will take him down, down, down. They will take the people down, 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 down. Um, God is sovereign. He brings kings to power. He takes them out of power. He brings presidents to power. He takes presidents out of power. He brings congressmen to power. He takes congressmen out of power. And, and sometimes we look at, look, that, that's not an excuse to say I'm not going to be involved or I, I'm not going to participate in our process here as citizens, but it's to say something beyond that, that our hope, our hope is in a sovereign God. It's not in what we do or what someone else does. It is fully and wholly centered on him, and he allows nothing that will alter his sovereign will. Another way of putting it is, is that Satan has no power in this world that God doesn't allow. There is nothing Satan can do that God does not allow. He is on a leash. We'll talk about that as we get on into this just a little bit more. But, but that is the reality. You know, used to, when, when I was growing up, there was a guy named Flip Wilson. He used to say, the devil made me do it, and everybody would laugh. You know, he's a comedian, and he'd say, oh, the devil made me do it. Some of you are looking at, who's Flip Wilson? Well, you were born about 30, 40 years too late for Flip. But, uh, <clears throat> but he was funny, and, and anyway, he would say, the devil made me do it. Well, that's just a lie. The devil doesn't make you do anything. You choose. You choose to do that. He has no power or authority over you as a child of God. Um, it, it's, um, God doesn't cause evil to happen. There's evil all around us, but God's not causing it. He allows it because that's part of a sinful, broken world. We've chosen to sin against God. That happened back in the garden. And because of that, creation is thrown into a messed up thing. People are messed up. I mean, everything. That's what sin does. Sin causes problems. And in a broken, sinful world, we're going to have hurts and pains and things that happen that we wonder why. But ultimately, we have to know it's, it's not God. He allows it, but he only allows what he allows. Otherwise, if if God just let Satan run wild, we'd all be destroyed. We wouldn't be here. If Satan was in control, nobody would be in the room right now. He wouldn't allow it. He wouldn't allow us to come together to worship God. I mean, and and the thing is, is he's he's the lap dog. He's nothing. He's nothing. God is ultimately in authority and in control. And Revelation clearly exposes us to this truth. It it reminds us that God is on the throne. 47 times in the book of Revelation, we see this word throne. 47 times. And then there's 77 other uses 
that are related terms to throne that would point us there. So you're looking at over 100 times, 125, 129 times that that you're coming in there and you're seeing this idea of throne, of God, sovereign, seated over everything. It dominates the book. It dominates the narrative. So it it should dominate our thoughts and our understandings of God. And and so that's one theme. The next theme is, is that suffering, suffering is the way of Jesus. Nobody wants to hear that today. Look, nobody came in here to hear that, guess what? As a follower of Jesus, you're going to have hard times. That we'll suffer. We just don't. Nobody likes to hear that. I don't like to. As a matter of fact, if you liked it, you'd be weird. I mean, that's not normal. But it's crystal clear because Jesus calls us to follow him. Where did Jesus go? Where does Jesus call us to follow him? He calls us to follow him. He said, look, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus went to an old rugged cross, so he calls us that. That is suffering. That is sacrifice. That's what he's called us to. Um, He is depicted as a lamb three times in Revelation. Three times he's called the lamb. One time he's called the lion. When we get to the throne room in a moment, we're going to see Jesus, a lamb, as if he had been slain, a lamb who had been slain. So that's the picture of Jesus. Suffering and sacrifice is the way of Jesus, and it's the path that he calls us to. That's what he came. He came to suffer and to die so that we could be redeemed and God could be glorified through that. Um, And then the final thing is that the restoration of heaven and earth is is the final chapter that we're going to turn to any day, any day, any time, the restoration of heaven and earth and, and all of the evil that this world sees, it's going, to ex- it's going to cease to exist. We spent the last three weeks looking at the new heaven and the new earth and what that means. It encourages us to persevere in our faith. So we're working from victory. We're not moving to victory. We're working from victory. Jesus won the victory on the cross. We are victors. We work from victory to the final thing that God has called us to. We're not trying to move to win. We've already won. Jesus won. Jesus is on the throne. So let's take a quick look at at the book of Revelation, an overview of it, and, and remind ourselves, why do we study God's word? Why do we do this? Why is this book important? This book gives us a record of what John saw. It doesn't give us a chronology of events. It gives us a record. Um, The thing that you're going to see, the the phrase, if you go through and you sit down and you read the book of Revelation, which I hope you will, read it from start to finish without stopping, but um, you'll see, um, he'll say, and look, or behold, or I saw, and this is what happens. It's It's a series of things that he sees as he comes in that Jesus shows him, and and so he frequently says this, then I saw. So, what is it that, that as we come up, and I'm just I'm giving a big overview, big 30,000-foot picture of the entire book. So the first thing is that God engages us and he walks among us. This is what you see in chapter 1. In chapter 1, you see that God engages us and he walks among us. Jesus engages John while he's in prison, on exile prison on the island of Patmos. John is an old man. He's in his 90s by then. He has walked with Jesus since he was a young man. Um, and, and he saw everything that went down in the life of Jesus as one of the closest to him. And, and then now he's worshiping. He's in prison because of his faith, because of what he represents. He's got people all around him who have been persecuted for the faith. He's seen his friends and, and probably family members die for their faith. He's seen a lot of ugly stuff. 
all related to the fact that they're being faithful to Jesus. So it says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he gets this message. He sees Jesus. Jesus encounters him, and, and he gives him a message for the churches. So, so the first thing we see this is that, that Jesus engages us. He engages us. He walks among us. He's here today. As a matter of fact, Revelation 2, 7, 2, chapter 2, verse 1 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, he begins with the first church, and he says, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands are, are a picture of the churches. The lampstands represent the churches. He, he defines this a little bit later in the, in the book. But, um, but the thing about it is, Jesus is walking among us. He engages us. He is here. He is with us today. And, and he works within our lives. So this is the first thing that we see. The next thing that, um, that we come into is that Jesus speaks to us. He speaks to the seven churches. And, and it's not, I don't think it's an accident that there are seven because you see these numbers happen all throughout the book. But these seven churches really represent every issue that's faced in any church today. If you come in today and you look, you read through these seven churches, you'll find things that we face right now today in our church. And you'll find things that people face in other churches, in other places. I'm not saying that we face, we, we're dealing with every issue listed in here, but there are issues in there. And as you come in, these letters would have been passed around to all the churches in the area, just like Paul's letters were. And, and so if you look at the church of Ephesus, what you'll see is faithful obedience. Man, these are people, they know their stuff. They know the word of God and they are, they are true to it. They always do the right thing, but they don't do it out of love. They just do it because they have to. They've forgotten why. They've forgotten who Jesus is. Um, they're just doing the, the things that have to be done. The church in Smyrna was patient endurance under trials. You know, they, they were under suffering severe trials, but they were faithful. They endured under that. Um, in, in Pergamum, you have faithful witness. They're a faithful witness, but they, they have idolatrous compromise in the church and in the culture. They're compromising on, on their faith and, and their stand on the truth of the Word of God. Um, in Thyatira, they have faithful works, but idolatrous sexual compromise. You know, you come into Thyatira and say, you know what? They're doing all the right stuff, but, but they also are really compromising in their sexual morals, in the way that they do that. And, and honestly, um, I, I read something recently, and I can't remember where I read it, but, but the guy said, you know what? The sin that we have normalized in the church is, is sex outside of marriage. We've just normalized it. We've acted like, we've moved to the point to where it doesn't even matter. It's not a thing. Not a thing. And, and if we don't recapture that, you can look at everything else going on and you, and you can go on beyond that. But look, the reality is, is when we move outside the boundaries in one place, it, it throws the boundaries out everywhere. And, and this is where it comes in. So coming in here, this is, this is Thyatira, and that would be the church in America. That would be the church in the United States, clear and foremost that, that it speaks to multiple, multiple people who claim to be followers of Jesus, but they live in a compromise here. Sardis is an empty faith. It's a faith that's not real. It's a faith that's, that, that, that is, um, it, it's the kind of faith that says, well, I'm a Christian or I'm a follower of Jesus, but it makes no difference in one's life. It, it has no impact in the way that they live it 
out. Um, Philadelphia is persevering witness. You know what? They're just persevering even under severe persecution. They just keep on doing the things that God has called them to. They're faithful to him. They love him. They love him beyond anything else. Um, Laodicea's lukewarm faith. She's saying, you know, yeah, I know, but uh, I, I'm just kind of going through the motions and so forth, but it's, it's not real. So as you come in, Jesus speaks to the churches. He speaks to us today. Wherever we sit on the continuum of these seven churches, he, he speaks to us. He speaks to churches around the world today. He speaks just as he spoke to those churches 2,000 years ago. So that's, that's where we are. He's walking among us. He is speaking to us. Um, the, the next thing in chapters 4 and 5 is the throne room. So we go from John encountering Jesus. We have this encounter with him. You come in, he has the letter. He says, look, I have a message for the church. Send it out. Pass these letters around. And then he comes to the throne room. And, and so this is the fullest picture of the throne room of God in all of, all of Scripture. If you want to know what does it look like in the presence of God, you go to chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, and you'll begin to see it. You'll see the four, um, the four elders, you'll see the, the, or the four living creatures, you'll see the 24 elders, and you'll see myriads of people wrapped around the throne in every tribe, tongue, language, worshiping God, this, this huge, huge, roar of praise before God as they come in. And, and so this is the, the dominant theme we see here is the throne. They are around the throne. They are worshiping at the throne. They are worshiping the God on the throne. And, and we get a glimpse of the glory of God in the Lamb as we come in here. And you can see this. You can see this great God that we worship and who he is. <coughs> and as we come into there, we see what true worship looks like. We see what it really comes down to we see Jesus the lamb who was slain as the one who is worthy of worship because as you come into all of it when when John says he says you know he says I'll show you the one who's worthy to open the the, the seals and, and you know right there when you're thinking that the thing I mean the thing that's going to pop in your mind if you haven't read it is the lion it's the lion it's Jesus he's the conqueror he's coming he's on the white horse he's got king of kings and lord of lords written on his leg it's about to go down and it says no I saw one a lamb who had been slain. You see suffering and sacrifice. You see the God that we serve who suffers and sacrifices so that we can be made right with God. We see love beyond anything that we could ever imagine, and, and we see him worthy of worship. And these chapters are about giving glory to God and giving glory to the lamb, and they remind us of who we are and how we relate to God. They remind us of the great debt that we owe to God that we could never pay ourselves that he has done on our behalf. They bring us to him in love so we see the throne in a way that we've never seen it before. We are brought into the very presence of God. So that <clears throat> opens it up and then it moves into the seals. <clears throat> and so we see these seven seals. And, and John, at first, he weeps because nobody's worthy to open the seals. And then Jesus himself comes and opens the seals because he's the only one worthy to see that. And this is calamity as you see these seals unfold and you see them open. It is calamity as would be seen by the redeemed. This is, this is how the people of God will see these seals unfold. This is how it happens here. These are the people throughout the ages who are around the throne, the thousands and thousands and millions of people worshiping at the throne. This is how they see it. This is how they view this judgment. <clears throat> these are events that God brings about either for redemption 
for redemptive purposes. That he brings these events about so that people will be drawn to God so that they will repent and turn to Christ and they will be redeemed and restored or they are judicial. They're a punishment for those who refuse to turn to God. So you see that, you'll see it in one of two ways. <clears throat> and so there are events that either punish the wicked or purify the saints. Because when we go through trials, they purify us. When we go through hard times, it purifies us. When we go through hard times, it reminds us of the stuff in life that doesn't matter, right? When you go through very, very difficult things, all of a sudden, all the stuff that you thought was so important goes by the wayside. And you get down right to the nitty-gritty of what really matters. What really matters. <clears throat> so this is a good thing to remember because God is at work even when we're suffering. Even in the midst of our suffering, God is at work. And it's a good thing to remember for us in a very prosperous society because in our society, suffering just doesn't fit into the equation. Look, if you, if you do a sermon series on suffering, people aren't going to show up. They want to know how to be happy, how to have your best life now, how to make money, how to do stuff. But that's not the thrust of the Word of God. The thrust of the Word of God is the Lamb on the throne, is God on the throne. And, and as we do that, then everything else that happens, it's just gravy. Done to the glory of God. There's, there's nothing, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with not suffering or there's anything wrong with doing well. That's, that's not it. That's not it at all. But it's not the point. The point is that God is working in us. So it's good for us to remember the four horsemen give us a glimpse of the evil that we face in society today. They're faced by every generation. They've been faced by every generation since, since the time of Adam. But they are famine, pestilence, war, and disease. Those four things, those are those four horsemen. You see the pale green horse, you know, he's sickly, he's diseased. Um, <clears throat> famine, war, pestilence, and disease. And, and John faced these things, as have many others. People face that today in our world today, globally. All, you can look at all of those different things. You can see famines, you can see pestilence, you can see disease. Um, <clears throat> you can see wars. So that's, that's um, coming in with the first, the first seals, the seven seals. Then you come into the seven trumpets. Um, this is chapter 8, verse 6 through eleven, nineteen. So if you come into the seven trumpets, <coughs> the trumpets represent judgment. Whenever the trumpet sounds, it is the sound of something coming that, that you need to watch out for. It is, it is the sound of, of war. It is the sound of judgment. It is the sound of, of, of God judging sin and those who refuse to repent and turn to him. So... When, when this happens, if, if, um, when we look at these trumpets, those who refuse to repent and turn to God, they experience the wrath of God. So <clears throat> this would be calamity not seen by the church or the people of God. This is calamity by those who have the mark of the beast. This is the calamity that's seen by those who are outside of the faith. These are, this is those who refuse to follow the Lamb. So they're seeing it here. So even this judgment... Even in this judgment, God doesn't destroy everyone. We, you know, we come in and, and everybody thinks of God as this, this you know, just, he's just waiting to, waiting to zap somebody or get somebody. It's not the, that's not the case. God is long-suffering. He is slow, but not slow the way that we think. He does not want anyone, anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to come to, come to repentance. That's the heart of God. The heart of God is that we will turn to him and receive the wonderful gift that he offers to us in Christ. So even in this judgment, you see the trumpets, not everyone's wiped out. 
It's only like 10%. 90% still have this opportunity to turn to God and wind, you know, wind the 10. We could go off on that forever. But, um, but just coming in and saying that's the fact. That's where it is. So this is the view of those with the mark of the beast. So you've got these, these things going on. So one, you've got these seals going on. Two, you've got these trumpets going on. It's probably concurrent running. And then you have this interlude between that and the seven bowls of wrath, which will be as seen from heaven. But in here, you have conflict between the church and the world. So chapter 12 through chapter 15, verse 4, you see conflict that's in the world between the church and those outside of the church. So here's an interesting thing. This section is comprised of seven things. And it shouldn't surprise you. Um, if you come in and, and, and you look in the book of Revelation, um, <clears throat> there, there are a lot of numbers that happen in here repeatedly over and over and over again. The number three, the number four, the number seven, the number 10, the number 12, and multiples thereof of those numbers. You're going to see them happen over and over and over again, and they symbolize completeness, or maybe the number 666 is just, it's just not. It's incomplete. The number of man is incomplete. The number of God would be seven. He's complete. Um, the, another way of looking at completion is 10, 10 fingers, 10 toes. Your baby comes out, and it's got 11 fingers and 12 toes. Something's not right, right? Um, but, uh, but that's what you look. When they come out, you count their fingers and you count their toes. Why? You want to be complete, and that's the number of completion, 10. And then you multiply 10 times 10 times 10, you get 1,000, um, three tens, and, and so forth. They're 10 cubed, and, and we could go off on math and have a lot of fun, but, but we won't do that. But anyway, you see these seven things. So it's interesting because John speaks in sevens. You see a lot of sevens happen in here. As a matter of fact, if you go into the Gospel of John, he writes his gospel, and he has some sevens he throws in there. He has seven I am statements. Seven times she says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am, um, <clears throat> I am the vine, and, and so forth. So, so you've, got, you've got these seven I am statements, and you've got seven miracles. John, John doesn't have multiple miracles. As a matter of fact, you may wonder, well, John's different from the other three gospels. They, you know, the gospel of Mark, Jesus is slaying, slaying um, demons and casting out demons, and he's healing the sick and bringing the dead to life and doing stuff all, you know, healing lepers and everything. I mean, he's just like on this, this tour of making it, making it happen, you know? And, and you come into the gospel of John, He's got the first, well, the first, first miracle is uh, he turns water to wine. Second one, he raises someone from the dead. And then he lists five more. There's seven. Just give seven. Because in John's mind, seven says he's perfect. In John's mind, everything is there because you get this idea of the metaphor of the numbers and understanding that the numbers have meanings and they're coming in, they're bigger than something that we just count. Um, so, so you come in there and John, he ends his gospel and he just says, hey, you know, and this is real, real loose, real loose um, quote, but um, he says, you know what, Jesus did all kinds of stuff and, and I suppose if I really wanted to write it down, all the books in the world wouldn't hold it. So he says, Good enough. We've done enough. So, so there it is, and, and that's where it ends. Um, but anyway, that's, that's the thing that happens in there. So you've got these, uh, these trumpets, and, and they go on, and even in this judgment, God doesn't destroy everything, and we come into the conflict between the world and the churches. So he gives seven signs. He gives the conflict of the serpent with the woman and her seed in chapter 12. He gives the persecution by the beast from the sea in chapter 
13. So the beast from the sea, if you remember, we said that was evil government. That is self-serving government. That is government that is not serving God or serving the people, but that is people who are corrupt. They're serving themselves, and they become evil and oppressive. Anytime your politician is doing stuff that's self-serving, they're evil, they're oppressive, and they're used by Satan. Simple enough. You can quote me. No problem. It's just biblical because we elect public servants. So when you vote, that's what you should vote. You should vote for somebody who has the heart of a servant, not somebody who's looking to get something for themselves. So you move off the beast. Well, it's easy to talk about government. Now let's talk about the church. The next beast is the beast from the land, and the beast from the land represents evil religion. It represents when the church is self-serving. It represents when, when people come in the name of God, but they're not really representing God, and instead they oppress the people, and they get from them. And you can historically play this out over centuries. You see this play out if you read history, and, and you see the movements within religious uh, things, even within Christianity. You, you see it happen when the church or, or within the church, people make it about themselves other than Jesus. It becomes evil and oppressive. That's ultimately where it always leads. Just like when uh, a government becomes all about the people in power, it becomes an autocratic evil thing. It's the same thing in churches, the exact same thing. So I'm not picking on anybody. I'm picking on everybody. This is the way that it works. So this is what's being listed there. So you see this. So this is the, the next thing that you see in the tension between the church and, and the world. And then the next thing you see is the lamb and the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion. So you see the 144,000. And, and so let's go back to these numbers, right? Are there only 144,000 there? Well, no, there's myriads of people. It, 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 unless you're a Jehovah Witness and you're wrong. You know, because that's not what that means. If you come in, look, you don't take the numbers in there to be literally there's 144,000, not 100, you know, not 139,999, not 144,001, but 144. That's not what he's talking about. It's 12 times 12, 12, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, 144 times a thousand or 10 times 10 times 10, three tens. You come in, in other words, he's just saying that it's, it's countless. It's countless. There are countless people who are going to be redeemed and coming and standing there. And then the proclamation of the gospel and of the judgment by three angels in, in 14, 6 through 13, you have the son of man's harvest of the earth in chapter 14, 14 through 20, and the saints' victory over the sea beast and their victory song. So this section... It just reminds us, we're going to face trials and tribulations. There are things that happen that no one has control over, but God is sovereign and he is in control. And there's no uh, coincidence here that John picked seven things, that seven things is what he sees. And then we have the seven bowls. So in chapter 15, 5 through 16, 21, we have the last of, of the, the calamities. So we have these three sets of calamities. We have the seven seals. We have the seven trumpets. We have the seven bowls. So, so you get these number things happening again. <clears throat> so if the seals are the view from the church or from the redeemed, and the trumpets are the view from those on the outside. This is the view from heaven, and it's concurrent with the seals and the trumpets. The best way of looking at this, I, I think, is to say that these are all three things that are going on concurrently. 
And, and so the golden bowls full of the prayers of the saints go up to God in the golden bowls. of. Um, so if you go back into, into chapters 4 and 5 and you see the saints there under the altar and they cry out, oh God, how long, how long until you punish this sin? How long until you avenge the evil, um, the blood of your saints and, and so forth? And, and you see the prayers of the saints going up to God in this golden bowl. And now you see the, pr- the, the wrath of God being poured out in this bowl, in these bowls. So the prayers come up and God answers the prayers and God does do what God says that he will do. Um, So the golden bowls of wrath come down on behalf of those saints from heaven. It's the glory of God coming down to accomplish his purposes. So in heaven, they're looking down and saying, God is accomplishing his purposes. It also introduces us to the battle of Armageddon. We're going to pick that up in a minute. But here, the sovereignty of God is clearly shown as we see these seven bowls. And and then you see the final judgment of Babylon and the beast in chapter 17 uh, through 19. 10, and, and Babylon represents the evil in this world and those who follow it. So for John, Babylon would have just been Rome. He would have, he would immediately, because by this point in time, historically, Babylon was this catch-all phrase for evil. You know, the evil, like, like the evil empire, whatever you want to call it. This is Babylon, Babylon. Babylon represents the evil of this world. It goes, you can go back to Babel, you know, the, the man wanting to build himself up rather than worship God. So this uh, section covers the destruction of the systems that seduce us with lies and the evil that's caused by those lies. So it, it just shows us that. <clears throat> it begins to... Uh, it, it covers those, those things. And Babylon the harlot and the beast are destroyed. So we see this as, as the, the harlot and the beast being destroyed. And this is followed by praise in heaven and the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we have the marriage supper of the Lamb here in, in this feast. And we'll talk, I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. But, but the next section, 19, 11 through 21, Jesus defeats the beast, the false prophet, and their followers. So we have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and, and it looks like there's going to be this big cosmic battle now. And we're talking about you know Armageddon, everything that we talked about, and and and, and we're expecting this big thing to happen. You know, Jesus coming in on the horse with King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh, and 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 everything coming down and riding the white horse, and all of a sudden he speaks, and it's done. There's not a shot fired. There's not a bow pulled back. There's nothing that happens because just as God created everything as he spoke, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you'll see God spoke and it happened. Look, the voice of God, God can speak things to happening. And when he speaks, the battle is won and the beast is defeated and evil is chained forever. So this is called he captures them and he throws them into the lake of fire in this section. And this is called the great supper of God. So you have the marriage supper of the Lamb, and you have the great supper of God. And, and what if you come into these two sections, here's, here's the takeaway from all of it. Every single one of us in this room is invited to something. You're either invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a wonderful, beautiful thing. That's eternity in the presence of God. Uh, when you get an invite, it's like this, the marriage supper of God, that's not so. That's where the Vultures of the sky eat your flesh. Um, you can become the meal. That's not the one you want to be invited to. Another way of putting it is, this summer we had friends, and uh, we were invited to a wedding. Beautiful time. Friends of ours, their son got married. We watched him grow up. He'd been in our home. Um, it, it was just a joy. It was an honor to be invited 
We got it. We were excited to go, to be there. Beautiful day, beautiful time, beautiful celebration, the, the joy and the anticipation and everything that would take place in something like that. You know, you come in and you just go, you know, this is just exciting and it's fun and it's good. And, and then, you know, for our friends who had to put everything together, they probably went when it was done because it was a lot of work. But, but you know what? It was all worth it. And, and, and you come back and you go, wow, this is just a great time. Great friends, great food, great celebration, the worship of God and, and everything that goes into it. That is the kind of invitation you want, right? You know what the marriage supper of God is? That's like when the IRS invites you to an audit. Nobody wants that invitation. That's when you're invited to be interrogated. That's when you're invited to become the meal. That's not the one you want. And, and here, if you want to come in and say, everything that I've told you in the book of Revelation today, look, take this away. God is on the throne, and you got one of two choices. You either got the marriage supper of the Lamb or you, got the, or you got the supper of God. And you want, to be in, you, you, you want to be in the right one when you come into that. So I want to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I greatly anticipate that. I look to that. I long for that. Because I know that, that just like the, 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 the things that we experience here on earth that are a joy and a delight, they pale in comparison. They pale in comparison to what this will be in the presence of God. And then in chapter 20, we see Satan on a leash. You see, we're victors. We're not victims. We're not victims. Even, even when we feel like we're being oppressed for our faith or, or whatever, we can whine and, and, and say our rights and all this other stuff. Look, we need to remember Satan's on a leash. He is on a leash. Jesus is on the throne, and Satan is on a leash. This is what we see in, in this chapter. And any view that elevates Satan as equal to Jesus or above Jesus or having power or authority over him, that's heresy. That's heresy. God has always been on the throne. He'll always be on the throne. And during the time between the birth of Jesus and his second coming, God's people, God's church, God's kingdom, it's going to keep marching on. Look, they tried to destroy the church in the day of John. Within 200, a little over 200 years, you know what the dominant belief system was in Rome? Christianity. They couldn't stop it. Because it was so compelling, because there was so much love, because, because women felt loved and valued by men. They weren't property or something to be traded or given. Little girls weren't put off on the side of the road to die. Instead, they were taken in and loved and raised. And, and young men were taught to love their wives. And, and it changed everything because people came in and they looked and go, you know what? God's way is beautiful, and God's way provides for us something that's, that's, that's compelling, and people were drawn to it, and, and all of a sudden, they changed the world. They changed the world through their actions and their love and their service of God, and, and so God's kingdom will march on. We'll make disciples, 
And Satan cannot stop us. We will train people to follow the Word of God. We will teach the Word of God. We will study the Word of God. We will pray. We'll have our kids up there learning about Jesus and learning about what it means to follow Him and learning that God loves them and and that the people of God love and nurture them and care about them. And, And we will come in and Satan cannot stop that. We will reign with Christ. This is what we are called to. You see, that's the plan and the purpose of God. When you come into the sovereignty of God, you go back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, here's what God tells the people. He, he tells Adam and Eve, he says, look, I want you to take care of the garden, be fruitful and multiply, and have dominion over it. He called them to build something beautiful. Instead, they went off into brokenness, but that doesn't mean that God in his sovereign plan was, was broken. Instead, he promises us in the end what we failed to do, he has done. And he will put us there. And that is where we will be. We will reign with him and Satan and all of his followers will be thrown into abyss and we will see in chapters 21 and 22 the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And this is what we've looked at for the last three weeks, I think, in sin is forever vanquished. God forever dwells among us. We will care for the garden that is complete. We will care. God will do what in his sovereign will he had planned in the very beginning that we had refused to do as sinful human beings. God has done, he makes possible, and we will be brought in there, not because we're good enough, not because we earned it, not because we quit sinning, but because Jesus made it possible. It's the restoration of heaven and earth to their sinless perfection prior to the fall. Heaven and earth become one. There's no separate place because God will be dwelling among us because there will be no sin. And God does not dwell in the presence of sin. He dwells in perfection. And it will be just like it was prior to the fall. That's our future hope. That's the hope. That's why this book matters. We come in and we see that God's on the throne, that we have a hope, that he has a future for us, that in that, that, that he will not only spiritually heal us, that we will be physically healed. We will have a resurrection body. I won't have creaks and aches, and I won't have to bend in the morning when I get up. And, and I will be in good shape always, and so will you. And some of you look around and go, what? Man, you must be really old. I am. And, and that's what happens. It happens to everybody the older that you get. But you know what? In heaven, we'll be ageless. There'll be no infirmities. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no diapers to change in the middle of the night. Or disease. Or pain. Because sin is defeated. That's our hope. You see, studying a big book like this, studying a difficult book like this, what it does is it gives us an understanding of who we are. It gives us an understanding of our purpose. It tells us that there's a purpose to our suffering. Our suffering is not without purpose. It has a purpose. It it refines us, and it points us to our future. And, And we see God on the throne calling us to be who we were created to be. That's what we see. You see, we're made to know God. You're made to know God. You're made to worship God. You're made to experience God. You're made to experience what he has created you for. And we have this book, and this book is really, when you come to the book of Revelation, it's not a book about the end times. It's a book about how to live in this time. 
It's a book of discipleship. It's a book of how to apply these things to our lives to live with a hope in a future, looking to what God wants us to do. And and what God does is he gives us an encouraging glimpse, just like he gave to John. Look, it's, it's, it's a glimpse of encouragement. John needed to be encouraged on that day. And on that day, here's what, here's what Jesus did. He just said, John, this is, this is everything that you see. This is your world, and, and it seems really dark and really bad and really difficult, and, and things just don't seem to be going on the way that, um, that you think. But I want to pull back the curtain. I want to let you see what's real. And he pulls back the curtain, and he sees the heavenly host, and he sees the angels of heaven, and he sees the power of God, and he sees the glory of God, he sees the plans of God, he sees the purposes of God, and everything is opened up, and then John can, can spend the next week there on, on Patmos saying, you know what? This is what I see, but it's not what is. This is what you see, but it's not what is. And this is, this is the destiny that God has for us as his people. So as we come in today, what invitation have you accepted? Is it is the acceptance to the marriage feast of the Lamb? Or is it the, the, marriage, the supper feast of God? Because there's only, there's only two camps. And those who step into Christ receive this beautiful thing that's going on right now. And those who refuse will be forever cast outside of it, always on the outside looking in, always wondering what if, always wondering why, why, why. So it comes down to a a really simple thing. And it comes down to um, knowing that I I want Jesus. You say, you know, if that's, that's your heart right now, he's saying it's very simple. You turn away from living life on your terms to following me. He calls us to follow him, to be his disciple to trust him in every aspect of our lives. He calls us to give our lives to him. We're described as slaves of God in the Bible. That's how he describes us, as he owns us. We give ourselves to him. Or we're owned by Satan. We don't really have a choice um, other than to pick which one we want. There's not a third option. So it comes in, so, so where is it? It's trusting Jesus, trusting that he died on the cross for our sins, leaning into that, and saying, I'm going to follow him. So if that's your heart today, I want to encourage you to do that right where you are. Just say, you know what, Jesus, that's what I want. That's what I want to do. I'm going to turn and follow you. And he promises that he will receive you. He'll begin to work in your life and change you and prepare you for what he has in store. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thanking you and praising you for the blessings that you've given to us, for the love that you have for us, for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Father, for the hope that you've given to us in your word, for the hope that you have for us in eternity. And Father, we praise you because you are sovereign. There is no man strong enough to overcome you or change who you are or what you've planned. Father, we trust you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We just